Well, good morning. I'm glad to be back with you this morning. Um, For those of you who may have just joined us in the last few weeks, you may be wondering where have you been and who are you? Uh, My name is Matt Morton and I'm the teaching pastor over here at our Creekside campus. I've been on a four-week rotation over to our Anderson campus for the last several weeks and then was out last week. So glad to be back with us. Let me just give you a quick preview of where we're headed for the next uh, several weeks. Today's kind of a one-off. We're going to be in Psalm 136. So if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to get over to Psalm 136. We're going to read it together in a little while. And then starting next week, as we head toward Easter, we are going to be doing a series uh, centering on the last week of Christ's life. So we'll be covering a lot of the events of the last week of Christ's life, sort of culminating with the resurrection, of course, on Easter Sunday. So I'm excited about diving into that. But this morning, we'll be in Psalm 136. Uh, As I was thinking about the psalm this week, I was reminded of a song from, I think, 1987-ish by uh, George Harrison, formerly of the Beatles. Uh, And you may remember the song, one of his more famous songs still. It's called, I've Got My Mind Set on You. You may remember it just goes, I've got my mind set on you, got my mind set on you got my mind set on you, I've got my mind set on you, right? Over and over and over again, uh, it repeats that line. In fact, it's so repetitive that uh, the parody musician Weird Al Yankovic did a version of it called This Song's Just Six Words Long, right? Some of you may remember that. This song's just six words long, song's just six words long, and he goes on, couldn't think of any lyrics. No, I never wrote the lyrics, so I'll just sing any old lyrics that come to mind, child. You really need words, a whole lot of rhyming words. You gotta rhyme so many words. To do it, 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 to do it right. This song's just six words long, and he goes on. Now, I love that version of the song because he is making fun of something that all of us have noticed about pop music. It's repetitive. They say the same things over and over and over again, and we laugh at it. And if we're honest, some of you have probably laughed at or maybe complained about that repetitiveness in modern worship music also, haven't you? Uh, You've said, man, we just sing the same words over and over again. There's that old joke, the 711 song, right? Seven words repeated 11 times, and that makes up the essence of the song. Okay, if you've complained about that, then the the psalm we're going to look at this morning might throw you for a loop. Okay, because this is more repetitive. Psalm 136 is more repetitive than really any modern worship song that we're going to sing. 26 times in Psalm 136, we have the phrase, his love endures forever. It's the second half of every single verse in Psalm 136. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Over and over and over again, right? And so you come to a psalm like this, you go, man, why would this psalmist, who he's unnamed, by the way, we don't know who wrote it, why would this guy repeat the same thing over and over and over again? Why would you do that? Well, for those of you who have children, you may have an idea, right? Why do you say the same things over and over and over? Some of you may have said, I feel like what? A broken record. Okay, why do you do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, because what you're saying, at least you feel like what you're saying, is important, right? You want them to know it. You want it to sink into their mind. So you say it over and over. But there's another reason. They don't listen the first time. 
right? They don't listen the second time. They don't understand the third or the fourth or the fifth time. So you say it over and over and over again. Well, you have the same thing going on in Psalm 136. The psalmist says this. He goes, look, there's one thing that is deeply important that I want to communicate so that by the time you get to the end of reading or reciting this psalm, you'll remember one thing. God's love endures forever. So I'm going to say it over and over and over again. Repetition helps us remember. God knows that. I have a son right now who's trying to remember his multiplication tables. And how do we help him remember his multiplication tables? We repeat them, right? Six times seven is 42. What is it? Six times seven is what? 42. It's six times seven. It's 42, right? You say it over and over and over again. Repetition helps us remember and absorb. That's what Psalm 136 is doing. And the reality that the psalmist wants to drive home is his love endures forever. And he uses this word for love that is used all over the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed, or if you want to say it right, you say it from the back of your throat, chesed, right? And this Hebrew word is is this idea of God's loyal, faithful, promise-keeping love, right? So here's what he's saying. I'm going to show you all of the ways in which God demonstrates his loyal, faithful, promise-keeping love. You know why? Because nation of Israel, he's going to say, you're surrounded by darkness, by trouble, by enemies, by chaos. And in the midst of that chaos, I want you to remember something. God loves you. And so at the heart of this psalm is a truth that is fundamental to the Scripture, and I'm preaching it this week because I want us, as we move toward the latter half of the semester, if there's one thing that you lock into your mind, it's just simply, God loves me. All right, that's it. If you walk away with this in your mind this morning, His love endures forever. God's faithful love will never leave me. Then this sermon is a win. And and I thought about it this week because I know for a fact that uh, most people in this room, you round that second half of the spring semester, and you may be feeling a variety of things. One is you're tired. You're ready for the school year to end. And you don't know how it's going to play out, but you're, you're exhausted. The future feels uncertain. And you wonder, how am I going to have the strength to make it through the next eight weeks, right? And so I feel like, for me, the second half of the spring is sort of a microcosm of life, right? Because I know that there are others of you that it's not just the next six or eight weeks. It's where your life is right now. You're in the midst of grief. You're in the midst of uncertainty economically or maybe with your family or maybe with your marriage, And you look around and you go, man, how am I going to endure? Can I trust God for the strength to endure? Right? And it's in that kind of a context that the psalmist wrote. To say, I just want you to absorb one reality. Wherever you are right now, whatever you're facing right now, absorb this reality. The love of God never ends. His faithful love endures forever. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to see sort of the lines of evidence for how we can trust God's faithful love. How does the psalmist make his case? Before I start teaching the passage, though, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it together. Okay, so uh, this psalm was probably, when it was originally written, what you would call a call and response. That is, the worship leader 
would read the first half of a verse, and then the people would shout out that second part, his love endures forever. Now, I've read this with my kids before, sometimes before bedtime, and I make it a little easier on them. I'm going to make it easier on you. I'm not going to have you shout out the whole phrase. All I'm going to have you shout out is the word forever, okay? Uh, We're going to do this 26 times. Now, you don't have to. I can't make you, but I promise you, you're going to enjoy the morning a lot more if you do, right? You're just going to feel better after we do this, okay? So, so what I want you to do, just like anything that your pastor makes you do, right? Try to do it. You might as well do it with all your heart. So uh, I'm going to sing, or I'm going to read the first part, and then when we get to the word forever, shout it out, right? Shout it out as loud as you can. About verse 14, you're going to get tired, I promise you. But by verse 26, you're going to go, okay, that was cool. All right, so here we go. Psalm 136, starting in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures. All right. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His love endures. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures. Who made the great lights, his love endures. The sun to govern the day, his love endures. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures. Okay, you're kind of fading a little bit. So so I know we're halfway through. Pick it up. We got maybe, I don't know, half of it left. You can do this. All right. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures. There we go. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures, and brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures. To him who led his people through the desert, his love endures, who struck down great kings, his love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, his love endures. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures. To the one who remembered us in our lowest state, his love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, his love endures forever. Who gives food to every creature, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, his love endures forever. Great job. All right, so you guys get the idea of what the psalmist is trying to do over and over and over again. His love endures forever. So what I want to walk through from the psalm then for a few minutes this morning is this. Here's the question, I think, at the heart of Psalm 136. How can we trust that God loves us, right? Because whatever you're in the midst of, and and live long enough, and and everybody will undergo trial, everybody will undergo grief, everybody will go under uncertainty, right? You live long enough, that's going to happen. So in the midst of that, the questions we have is this. Can I trust that God loves me? Can I trust that God has a plan? How can I trust that God loves us? These are the lines of evidence the psalmist is going to give us and what he calls us to do to remember God's love. And the first one is this. You recognize who God is. Verses one through three. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. He says fundamentally at the the heart of how we trust God loves us is that when we're in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of chaos, we reflect on, we recognize who he is, that we worship a God who loves us. 
and we worship a God who is strong. He loves us, and he's strong. So he begins, he says, God is good. God's intentions toward you and me are benevolent. God is kind. God seeks the best. Every good gift comes from who? From God. And then he goes on and he says, give thanks to who? The God of gods, the Lord of lords. Remember, for the nation of Israel in the midst of their enemies, their enemies did not worship Yahweh. They worshiped pagan gods, right? And their enemies threatened them militarily. And so the psalmist says, I want to remind you of something. You give thanks to the God over all other gods, the Lord over all other lords. In other words, compared to God, all the other gods of the nations are powerless. They can't win. So you give thanks to a God that you know who is loving and who is strong. That is in the midst of the darkness of your life, in the midst of the struggle and the pain, in the midst of fear. You go back to who you know God is. Right? I can't see all the details of what God is doing in my life today. I can't see all the details of what God's going to do in the future, but I come back to this rock-solid reality that the Scripture repeats over and over and over again, that He's good and He's strong. I was remembering this week when I was a, a kid, and, and my dad is here, he'll probably remember this, uh, I uh, had a chore that I had to do outside. It was to empty the skimmers on our pool outside. So I had to go out in the evenings and I would dump out you know, all the grass and leaves out of those little skimmers. And I hated that chore. And the reason was because uh, by the time I got to it, it was always dark outside, especially in the winter. And in order to complete the chore, I had to go around behind a large evergreen tree that was in our backyard. So when I was around at that back skimmer, I couldn't see the house and nobody in the house could see me, right? So I was terrified. And in fact, for a period of time, I had nightmares about emptying the skimmers that while I was out there, somebody would come out, some dark shadowy figure would come out and shove me in the pool or leap over the fence and drag me away, right? I had these nightmares for years, just last week, actually had, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Not really. But what did I do in the midst of that fear? Well, here's what I would do. I would go inside and I would say, dad, can you come out and watch me while I empty the skimmers? Right now, I'm sure dad thought the reason I assigned you to empty the skimmers is because I don't want to come outside, right? I want to be inside. But he would do it, right? He would come out, he would stand on the back porch and he, he would watch. And, and in my eight or nine-year-old mind, I, I felt better, right? I felt better for two reasons. One, because I knew dad loved me, right? He was benevolent toward me. He had good intentions. He wanted the best. He didn't want something bad to happen to me emptying the skimmer. Secondly, in my eight or nine-year-old mind, I thought dad is definitely stronger than anybody who would leap over the fence to grab me. He loves me and he's strong. All right? That's what the psalmist says. You give thanks to God. Why? Because he's good. He loves you and he's strong. So he says, you come back to the character of God. It's, it's reiterated, of course, in the New Testament. In one place it's reiterated is in the book of 1 John. John says this, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. That is the spirit of those who oppose you in the world. You're from God, you've overcome them, because why? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The God of gods is greater than the spirit of the world. And then he says this, beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. 
And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. In other words, if you want to know what love is, you look at the character of God, right? God made the world out of love. Okay, this is interesting that in Christianity, in the God of the Bible, we see the only God in all of the world religions, the only God who creates out of love. In other words, you think about, for example, the God of Islam. Why does he create? Well, he creates out of need. He needs servants. He needs people to worship him because because he's he's alone right but our god he exists before time began father son and spirit in a relationship of love amongst the different members of the trinity and then he says i want to express and reveal my great love in creation you want to know love you look at the character of god you want to know strength you look at the strength of god He says, you recognize who God is. You want to know that God loves you, remember his character. He is good and he is strong. Secondly, we trust that God loves us when we look at what God has made. When we look at what God has made. Look at verses 4 through 9. He goes on from God's character now to creation. And he says, to him alone who does great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and the stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. He says, if you want to understand this God who loves you, just look around, right? And and you see this throughout the Psalms in multiple places. Psalms 19, right? The heavens are telling the glory of God and the earth proclaims the work of his hands. That is that when we look at creation, we reflect on the creator. If we don't believe in a loving God who created the world, then creation makes no sense at all. It only makes sense as it points back to a creator, right? And that's not just me saying that, right? From my perspective, I'm not just saying, hey, it makes no sense. This is uh, something that is written about over and over in the writings of some of the most prominent atheists. They say, look, if you don't believe in a God, then the universe at its core has no purpose. This is from Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist. He says this, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Have a nice day, right? I added that last part. (laughs) If we don't believe in a creator with a purpose, then, then, then the world has no purpose. Right, but over and over again, the scripture affirms, look, look at the world around you. Yes, it's fallen and broken because of sin and death. It doesn't work right now like it's supposed to work. But when we look at the greatness of God's creation, the beauty of what he's made, including mankind, we say, okay, there, there's, a, there's a purpose. There's a reason. Because every good gift, every good thing that was made comes from God's hand, right? So if you were to go to the Louvre and you look at this painting, the Mona Lisa, you might think about the the painter, Leonardo da Vinci, and you might think about all of his creativity and all of his skill, right? You might reflect upon what kind of character this painter had, right? If you look at this painting by Vincent van Gogh, 
You might think other thoughts about the character of the painter, right? Because it's a little scary, a little dark, a little disturbed. You might go, what kind of person would paint this? Maybe you look at this and you think about the creativity of the designers, right? And you say, I'm so thankful for the creativity because the world is at my fingertips. Every cat video ever created, I can watch it, right? And you look back to the creator. The psalmist says the same should happen when you see this. We say, when I see beauty, when I see order, when I see purpose in creation, I go, oh, I, I serve a God whose love endures forever, who created the world as a place for his people. As Psalm 139 says, he created us to be fearfully and wonderfully made. I know of at least one man who, when his first child was born, caused him to rethink the reality of God. Because as he held that baby, he thought, there has to be a creator to create something so wonderful. So the psalmist says, you look at the sun, the fact that the sun rises and sets, the moon comes up and sets. You look at the fact that that there's water on the earth, there's food for us to eat, that God provides day after day after day through his creation. And you say, okay, his love endures forever. And we look ahead to a day where there will be a renewed, recreated creation without all the problems that plague our lives right now. So he says, how do we trust that God loves us then? You remember who God is. Secondly, you look at what God has made. And thirdly, he says, you recite what God has done. You recite what God has done. And he says there there are two primary ways in which God has acted in history that we want to remember. And the first one is this. He says he's kept his promises. Verses 10 through 22. It says to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea to him who led his people through the desert, who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel. His love endures forever. So here's what he does is he recites the history of Israel. Right Now, you may or may not remember Sihon and Og. My guess is that, that that's a little dusty in your mind. So let me refresh your memory. Sihon and Og were these two kings of the Amorites who lived on the east side of the Jordan River. So before the people of Israel crossed the Jordan to enter into the land that God had promised, there were these two kings of these pagan nations who were blocking their way. Right, and God gave them victory. So they cross over the Jordan River and God gives them the land. It says he gives them the land as an inheritance. Right? You'll no doubt remember the exodus from Egypt that he talks about where the people leave Egypt after God had demonstrated his power to Pharaoh and the Egyptians through the plagues. Right? And as they're at the shores of the Red Sea, what happens? The Red Sea parts and the people march across on dry land and then the Red Sea closes on Pharaoh and his army. And I don't know if when we read the psalm a few minutes ago, when we started reading, yes, he killed Sihon and Og, if you felt weird going, his love endures. But what's the point? The point is that God had made a promise to his people. 
He said, I'm going to give you this land. And there are nations that opposed God that had been steeped in violence and idolatry for hundreds of years. And God says, I'm leading you into their land to set up in this place a nation that will worship me. So the psalmist says, look back. If, you, if you're afraid, if you're fearful, if you're grieving, you look back and you say, look what God did. And, and the best evidence that God will work in the future to keep his promises is that he's done it in the past. All right, so we look back and we say, we worship a God who made promises to his people Israel and he kept them. We worship a God who in Jesus Christ said, I'm gonna die And I'm going to rise again on the third day. And then he rose again on the third day. And the same Jesus Christ says, one day I will come back and establish my kingdom where there will be no pain, no suffering, no death, no tears. And so the best evidence of God's future faithfulness, the psalmist would say, is is that he's been faithful day after day after day. Right? We, We sing it sometimes. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord God my Father. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Every day the sun rises and we see the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. Uh, We have one child who quite frequently will ask us uh, what's for dinner. Uh, It usually begins at breakfast time. (laughs) The child will say, hey, what are we having? What are we having for dinner this evening? And, And you know, but at least half the time, we don't know. We're not sure what's coming for dinner that evening, right? And, and, and behind the question often is a little bit of fear. Behind that question, what are we having, is sometimes the question, will we be eating dinner? Will there be food? Can I trust that when I hit that dinner time, there will be something to eat, right? And, and if you've ever had a child do this, what do you say? You say, let me just, let me just remind you, child, of the history of your short life that is ever lengthening but still short? Has there ever been an evening where you haven't eaten? And if they think about it, they're probably going to go, no. And then they go, based on that, can you trust that this evening we will eat, right? Worst case scenario, we'll order a pizza, right? Something. But you'll have food. Can you trust us? Now, if, if your child is like ours, often they may say, I'm not sure, right? I don't, I don't know. Right? But, but we're, we're really v- very much the same, aren't we? God says, hey, I, I kept my promises yesterday, the day before that, the week before that, the year before that, thousands of years before you were born, God says, I was keeping promises that I made to my people. Can you trust me that I'll do it tomorrow? I don't know. Maybe. The psalmist says, no, the answer is Yes. That in the midst of sin, in the midst of death, in the midst of chaos, we can look and say, God never left his people. And in fact, now as the people of God in the church age, we have the resurrected Jesus. And we say the God who loved us enough to send his son and who was strong enough to raise him from the dead has made a promise of eternal life. And so we trust him. We worship a God who has kept his promises, so we trust his love will endure forever and ever and ever. We recite what God has done. He kept his promises, and then he saved his people. Verses 23 to 26, the psalmist ends on this note. To the one who remembered us in our lowest state and freed us or rescued us from our enemies 
and who gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. In verse 24, this word freed or rescued or saved actually has the idea of almost like a dragging away, a dragging away. So uh, you have an enemy and, and you're trapped. Your enemy has held you captive. And here comes the hero and he grabs you and he drags you away, right? Think for just a minute about like every piece of great literature or a lot of movies or even video games. A very common theme is somebody is trapped, right? Usually it's a damsel in distress. She's trapped by some evil enemy. And somebody comes along and, and grabs her and pulls her away to save her, right? So I made just like a partial list of some of these this week. So uh, like Rapunzel, you may remember the fairy tale Rapunzel. She's trapped in a tower. She needs to be saved. Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, all of these fairy tales. Some movies, the movie Taken, the movie Die Hard, the movie The Princess Bride, even video games like Donkey Kong has this theme. The Legend of Zelda has this theme. Why is it such a common theme? In what we write, what we read, what we watch. Even in non-Christian circles, why is it such a common theme? It's because that's the way God designed his story. You and I are trapped in sin and death. Right? And the psalmist says, what, what does God do? He, he, he rescues. He's a, he's a rescuer. In fact, at the end of the story in the book of Revelation, literally, you have the king come in. He's riding on a white horse. He kills a dragon, and he grabs his bride, and they ride off into the sunset. The psalmist says, if you want to remember the love of God, you remember he's a saving God. Now, to the nation of Israel, of course, he's, he's talking about being saved from physical enemies, probably, in this context. But Israel would find out, as, as we would find out, they needed a much greater salvation, one that would last forever. Because the problems in their lives weren't merely external, but they, they were in the heart and in the mind. And so what God does in Jesus Christ is, is he saves. Jesus dies in our place. He took the punishment that we had earned because of our sin. He took on himself our death, and then he rose again. Why? Because he's good and he's strong. And then he says, trust in me. Right? You take my hand, I'll drag you away from the enemy. Because his love endures forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the enemies of God. And here's what it says Jesus will do in the end. It says, he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. There's no enemy that defeats the love of God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. 26 times. He says, if there's one thing I want you to walk away with from this psalm, his love endures forever. God loves you with a love that doesn't fail. We're going to close this morning in the celebration of communion. And I love that that happens to fall on this Sunday 
Because communion is, is a powerful opportunity for us to, to celebrate in a very tangible way the enduring love of God through Jesus Christ, right? Because as we drink the uh, juice and as we eat that bread, we are remembering what God did for us in his love, that he gave Jesus who died on the cross for us. And then we look ahead and we say, if God has kept his promises, we can look ahead. And as Jesus said, Jesus said he would one day eat and drink with us in the kingdom of God, that, that one day we will celebrate a feast with Jesus who's risen from the dead. And so we both look back and we look forward and we do it together so we can look also at one another and remind one another we serve a God whose love endures forever. He died and rose again and he's coming back again. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, as we partake of communion, we have an opportunity then as the elements come around to reflect on the love of God and how his love endures forever. Um, now, I need to make one very quick logistical note as we start communion because uh, it's a little different this morning, and I don't want anyone to be confused. Um, the bread and the, the uh, juice are in stacking cups, basically. The bottom one will be the little cracker, and the top one will be the juice. So just grab one set and separate them. I am very confident that most of us can figure this out. But um, <laughs> just in case, just grab one. And uh, it's just going to be a simpler process. But as the elements come around this morning, take a moment to reflect upon and thank God for his enduring and perfect love in Jesus Christ. So let's prepare our hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to, to celebrate and thank you for your enduring love this morning, most powerfully expressed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you that, as we just read, we, we will celebrate and remember the death of Jesus Christ until the day he returns. And on that day, we will, we will feast with him. And celebrate with him. Father, we pray that we would look toward that day and in the meanwhile trust that even though we don't see every detail and every purpose that you're putting together, we know you're good. We know you're strong. And we know that you are moving all of creation toward a day of renewal and restoration for those who know and trust Jesus Christ. We're grateful to be your people. Father, we pray that we would faithfully proclaim the word of God to see more men and women come to be a part of your kingdom. We're thankful for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.